this week on Making Contact. You know, we could know the results as early as tomorrow morning, but it may take a little longer. As I've said all along, it's not my place or Donald Trump's place to declare who's won this election. That's the decision of the American people. Voting in one of the most momentous presidential elections in the nation's history is over. The morning after polls closed, nearly 136 million ballots had been counted. But as had been reported for weeks ahead of the election, there's no clear winner, and the tally of absentee ballots continues. In this program, we'll go to Arizona, Florida, and Oregon to hear from voters there. And later in the program, we'll hear about election power grabs and some of the legal fights that have been taking place to protect the rights of voters. This is Election 2020, More Than a Vote, on Making Contact. I'm Monica Lopez. The race for president is tight in battleground states, but in Arizona, many voters are celebrating the historic win. Reporter Maritza Felix has more on the mood in the state. In Arizona on voting day Tuesday, the early mood was celebratory. I feel confident. You know, we're in the maverick state, to be brief. Uh, John McCain was the one that paved the way for many of us. That's Chef Silvano Salida Esparza, an activist and restaurant owner in Phoenix. She is one of millions who voted early by mail in Arizona. According to journalist Maritza Felix, voting by mail was by design. She followed the election results for us in Arizona. Tuesday was a historic day in Arizona. Arizona turned blue. Arizona has been Republican, voting Republican for the past 20 years. In 1996, Clinton won the presidential race in Arizona, and he was the last Democrat to do so. But on Tuesday night, Joe Biden made history. And not only him, Mark Kelly, who was running for Senate, Sheriff Benson, who was running for re-election, they also won. There are also Democrats. Proposition 207, the legalized the recreational use of marijuana. Proposition 208, who imposed a new tax to support education in Arizona, also won. And those two bills were supported and endorsed by Democrats. So Tuesday, is it was a historic day. The next day, Wednesday, everybody was still wondering, is this possible? Are we in the real new Arizona? Is this what change looks like? I think most of the change comes from many of the volunteers that this election made that Arizona had record numbers, voting numbers. We in Arizona were so used to be voting by mail. Early voting is a huge thing in Arizona. So by last week, last Friday, before the elections, we already had 2.3 million of ballots delivered to the electoral authorities. So whenever we had the results, we were already seeing what was the trend in Arizona. And it aligned with all the things that the volunteers, the people, and the voters were telling us. It's like, we are tired of the same thing all over and over. We're tired of being taken for granted, and this is how Arizona is going to look like from now on. It's not about parties. It's about change, respect, and dignity. Felix talked to organizers at Mi Familia Vota, a national organization that works to increase civic participation in Latino and immigrant communities. Eduardo Sainz Borrola, I am the Arizona State Director for Mi Familia Vota. You know, it's no surprise that right now our communities have been suffered the hardest when it comes down to COVID uh, because of our 
unemployment rates, um, lack of access to healthcare, and our kids not being able to thrive at public education. Uh, and our communities understand that in order to create change, we, need, we must show up on election day and we must hold elected officials accountable. There's no coincidence that Arizona electorate, 80% of us, uh, of voters vote by mail. Uh, and it's because of the education and the investment that we have made into the Latino community to be able to thrive and also have participate from the comfort of their homes. We're the second group, the second largest group in the country, uh, and we deserve for representation when it comes down to the courts, when it comes down to elected officials, when it comes down to representation overall. We need to make sure that our uh, our 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 representation at all levels happens the way that needs to be and also create a pipeline of new leaders that can take on those roles and be prepared to govern uh, in the different levels from municipalities to uh, our federal government. For Esparza, no matter who you voted for, it's all about respect. There's a mural right behind us and it says, El respeto al derecho ajeno es la paz de Mito Juárez. De que lo estoy viendo. All right, I can see from here. Respect to other people's rights is peace. I can't expect you to respect me if I don't respect you first. So I respect my fellow Republicans, but I hope that they can respect themselves enough to vote with the conscience. That that they hold dear and near to their party. The things that I respect, that even if their steadfast stance on things, you know, I gotta respect that. So we'll see. We'll see what the conscience of America's at. The day before the election, host of Hard Knock Radio, Davey D, spoke with Dr. Kimberly Ellis, founder and creator of Black Politics Matter. Ellis explains the role that the state of Pennsylvania could play in the race for president. You know, here in Pennsylvania, you know, we are a battleground state. You know that Pennsylvania, you know, we we as in the Democrat who are who are voting for Hillary Clinton and against Donald Trump lost that battle by 44,000 votes in 2016. And so we've been trying to make sure that we don't repeat that error. And um, it's been a major battle. I mean, um, everybody knows that so goes Pennsylvania. So goes the United States of America. Everybody's saying like so goes the country for this race. Donald Trump and Joe Biden they are ending their races here, basically. Both the city of Pittsburgh and the city of Philadelphia are densely packed populations and they are bastions of liberal politics. So you can pretty much count that like they are anti-Trump largely in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. But when you get outside of those cities and you go to the wider counties, it's a mix and you definitely step into Trump country. So it's, it's interesting because uh, because of those types of politics. So what's been happening lately, I mean, I think what made the most national news is the so-called Trump uh, caravan welcome of the Biden bus in Austin, Texas. Um, and people will say, oh, you know, they were just giving him a Trump Trump welcome. You know, the, the vehicle surrounded the bus and, quote unquote, escorted them down the highway. But it definitely was it meant to terrorize is definitely meant to intimidate and the biden harris events that were supposed to occur in austin texas that evening were canceled 
All right. So if it was just a friendly welcome, right, which we already know was not, you know, it's not a friendly welcome, then you wouldn't have to be, you wouldn't have to have safety concerns. You wouldn't have to um, be concerned about, you know, intimidation. This, this is, this is voter suppression. See, so here's the thing. The voter suppression tactics have not worked largely. I got to give it to the Democrats and their organizing. I got to give it to the Biden-Harris team because the way that they pushed early voting was brilliant. The way that they made sure that at least Democrat-run states and any Democratic officials, you know, that were on the ground, they made sure to open up and literally democratize the Democratic spaces. So more ballot boxes were open. One state where both presidential candidates campaigned heavily in the days before the election was Florida. Reporter Veronica Saragovia joined me from Miami. Well, Monica, I'm going to start off here in Miami-Dade County, which is the most populous in the state of Florida. And it went to President Trump. And he drastically improved his support in Miami-Dade County by some 200,000 votes in this election as compared to the last one. And actually, former Vice President Joe Biden didn't show a, a growth for Democratic support in the county. And President Trump also had an effect on the down-ballot races. Two House Democrats from South Florida have lost to the Republican challengers, and they are uh, Donna Shalala, who was the Health and Human Services Secretary under former President Bill Clinton, and she lost to a former TV journalist and commentator, Maria, Maria Elvira Salazar. Florida's voters approved a minimum wage hike. It will go up to $15. And so last night you went out in the streets to speak to voters. Where were you and and who were you speaking with? So I went to two places in Miami-Dade County, and one of them is in a city called Hialeah, which is a very, um, it's traditionally a Republican stronghold because the population is largely Cuban-American. We're here to support our president. And... We need, yeah, I have a business and he supports the business. He's a businessman and I'm pretty sure he will come out. Our commander call was really good before the pandemic. And I think he will kind of come out again. And there's a library there, the John F. Kennedy Library, where I went because I, I had heard the lines for voting had been pretty long over the course of early voting. And it was a place that was very busy and there were Cuban-American voters who support President Trump on one side. And then I noticed a little while later, a group called Cubanos con Biden came and set up a table on the opposite end. This country opened their arms to Cubans in a way that they've done with no other refugees before. They immediately made it possible for us to work, for us to be legal in the system, for us to have driver's license, for us to send our kids to school. My mother came without her parents, and they sent them through the Catholic Church with a government program that my grandparents knew her kids would be taken care of until they could be reunited. They gave us um, health care. They gave us uh, um, tuition and grants to go to school, to go to university. And when people talk about the how well, quote unquote, Cubans have done in this country, it is because we were accepted with open arms, because we were given every opportunity. That makes me 
immediately responsible to anybody else knocking on our door because my parents wouldn't have made it if our country hadn't welcomed us this way. The speed at which Cuban Trump supporters want to close the door speaks to the nationalism, the racism that they learned in Cuba. And it speaks to what they learned under dictatorship. So, you know, for the first time, Latinos are the largest ethnic minority group uh, voting group in the country. 32 million were eligible to vote in this election. Now, as we know, that many people with so many different origins are, are bound to have diverse viewpoints. How, how does that diversity play out in Florida? The Latino vote here in South Florida and in Florida generally is quite different than that in many other states in the country. Trump won the majority of the Cuban-American vote, which is not surprising. What was different this year, based on people I spoke to, is that it it varied very much on age. And so the older Cuban-American voters... Um, who many of whom have been here since the 60s. They are staunch Republicans and don't want any warming of relations with Cuba. President Trump reversed former President Barack Obama's policy of, of engagement with Cuba, and so that has done very well. I heard a lot in advertisements the terms, you know, socialista and comunista when there, when opponents of Joe Biden were portraying him as maybe someone who could resemble the leaders of countries that they left and that that they are very much opposed to. Venezuelan Americans also shifted uh, towards Trump. He didn't do as well with Puerto Rican voters. A lot of them live in the in the center of in central Florida, in the Orlando area. There's certainly the issue that Democrats didn't do a lot of door knocking this election because of the pandemic. But the Republican Party has done a lot more of the get out the vote in person. And um, analysts say that that really helped Trump out. Though there were fears of unrest on Election Day, voting in cities like Portland ran smoothly. Before the election, President Trump ordered federal officers deployed to Portland, and protesters clashed with Proud Boys and MAGA supporters for months. I am Tammy Hopdias. I go by she, her, and I'm the public affairs director at KBU Community Radio. And what did you see last night? How did people feel at the polls? People were very excited. People were super excited. They were very upbeat. There was a little bit of an underlining of, okay, let's just kind of be vigilant. But overall, people seemed really, you know, stoked to partake in democracy. My name is Greg Vollmer. I'm 32 and uh, I'm a crew lead uh, at a moving company. But yeah, this is the first time I voted in eight years. And I thought that it was amazing the, the initiative that you saw with sports in particular and how much of a marketing effort they did to really emphasize the get out and vote. I think it's amazing. I think it's awesome for this country if there's a positive that came out of it. People like myself that decided that I, I didn't want to think my voice, voice had any impact. Mm -hmm. And this year, after eight years of not voting, I made sure I got my butt out and vote. There's been a lot of violence in Portland this past year. Were there any Proud Boy agitators or was there fear felt by you as you interviewed people at the polls? Uh, as a black woman, I'm always vigilant in Portland, especially in, you know, the last since the summer, since the uprisings. There wasn't any violence, although once it started getting dark, there were a couple of unsavory looking folks uh, walking around and police presence definitely tripled within moments. And did anyone you talked to have a fear about, you know, Trump supporters or 
Proud Boys showing up and agitating, or did they seem pretty hopeful? People seemed pretty hopeful in the sense of they were happy to vote, although there was a lot more fear towards the future and what this election holds. An ongoing mantra was fear of the future in sense of what people are being taught and exposed to right now, and also, um, of course, COVID and what that means going forward. They were definitely saying that if Trump was elected, then people are going to die, just straight up like that, which was, you know, very strong words, but people weren't really holding back. And they were just hoping that Biden would have a better plan than what Trump is doing right now, which, you know, as we can see, it's it's kind of when you start with nothing, it's only going up. Unfortunately, he's left him a lot of wiggle room to to do a better job at a COVID response. My name is Chiquita and I'm retired. And right now I'm acting as a poll of elections observer for the Democratic Party. And uh, what are some of the issues that are important to you during this particular 2020 election? Um, multiple, multiple, multiple <laughs> issues. Anything having to do with economic disparity, with housing, with racial justice issues, with criminal justice, with health care, with just the bad behavior of the person in the White House right now. The slide toward fascism. Was, was last night what you expected? I didn't expect to see so many young people. I didn't expect to see so many black people, too, which I was thrilled to see. And, you know, there are a lot of um, Spanish-speaking media outlets as well. Is this all walks of life, you know, and everyone was there for one reason. And that one reason was for progress of some sort, you know, no matter who you voted for. I was expecting it to be more scary. It reminded me of going to the polls uh, with my grandmother when I was younger. Just remind me of America, like all walks of life. A lot of people saying just exercising, exercising my civic duty. My name is Kylie Wagner. I am 27 years old and I'm a professional circus performer. Today, I'm out here with Cirque du Vote, which is a national um, kind of effort to get people to the polls and uh, practicing their, their part in democracy. I think, I think that there's no one issue that we can really single out right now, but I think that getting people out there and, and hearing the true voice of the people is what's important right now. That was Tammy Habtis from KBU Community Radio reporting from Portland, Oregon. Although some states began counting mail-in ballots early, some key battleground states like Pennsylvania will take a few days to tally results. And some organizers warned that given Trump's tweets and comments, he would try to subvert the election in some way. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. What does this mean? A few observers caution that Trump could attempt to orchestrate an undemocratic seizure of power through key institutions like the high court. Making Contact producer Salima Hamarani spoke with organizer Joshua Khan Russell, who's been preparing for this possibility. And I'm an organizer with an effort called Choose Democracy. A number of us saw the writing on the wall of the different ways that Trump and the Republicans were going to potentially try to steal the election using legal, illegal, extra-legal means in a way that was tantamount to what we're calling a coup. And we decided that starting in August, we were going to start to seed a strategy framework that was based on 
what we've learned from coups from the last maybe 70, 80 years all around the world. And we go deep into case studies, everything from Thailand in 1992 to Argentina in 1987 to, you know, France in 1961. You know, in 1920 in Germany, there was, in this case, it was a military coup. There was this right-wing leader named Wolfgang Kopp. He got a number of different institutions uh, in society on his side. He went into the Capitol building and all the government workers immediately went on strike. And there was no one who could even type up his declaration. The newspapers wouldn't print it. And through instituting a general strike, the coup was defeated in four days. And we're not trying to be hyperbolic in a way that tries to conjure up tanks rolling in the streets or anything like that. But the truth is there's plenty of coups that happen that do not involve that level of military repression. Even recently, you know, leftists around the world have been celebrating in Bolivia the overturning of the consequence of their coup a year ago. And that was primarily executed through the courts. And so what coups are, are an undemocratic power grab using a variety of institutions of society. And it does not have to be the military that is the primary vehicle of that seizure. It can be institutional. And in addition, our orientation is even if the GOP finds ways to abuse loopholes in the law and exploit all of the various fractures that currently exist in democratic process, that that doesn't mean that we need to go along with it, that we can, in fact, resist and refuse to comply. And in this country, there's a few different precedents for this. And we also draw on the election of 2000, when uh, the Supreme Court intervened to stop the counting of ballots, and then basically anointed George W. Bush Jr. to be president. And later, when the votes were really counted, it turned out that Al Gore would have won. And in fact, if we had used that language in advance and had organized around it, we wouldn't have to rely on the Democrats to make a decision about whether or not to capitulate. Because the truth is that coup plotters want us to believe that we don't have agency, and we do. And as we've been popularizing this framework, we've also been very cautious to tell people, we're not just going to declare it a coup if we don't like the results. You know, there's messiness regardless. You know, th this whole election cycle is really revealing a lot of the dirty tricks that have been used for time immemorial, everything from voter intimidation to voter suppression to malfunctions to the abuse of the post office to the competing narratives of legitimacy of mail-in ballots. It's messy. And it's just because it's messy doesn't mean that it's a coup. But we do think a coup is possible here. And we therefore need a sense of a strategy to respond to it that has an arc of escalation so that we don't just retreat into the typical mindset that activists have, which is we're going to just get out into the streets and protest Trump. So there's three red lines for us. The first is if they stop the counting of votes. The second is if a winner is declared who didn't get the most votes. And then the third one is if the government allows someone to stay in power who didn't actually win the election. And the reason that we call it a coup is partially because of its precision, that the dynamics in a coup situation are distinct and different than I think a lot of U.S. activists are used to. In a, the dynamics of a coup, we're really entering competing claims of legitimacy. And when you're in a contest of legitimacy of who gets to inherit the throne, we need to have a particular strategy that's oriented towards winning over the center, pushing an uncertain center off the fence. And then in addition to that, weakening the different pillars that hold up the regime. So if you think of a regime as like a roof of a building, 
power doesn't just exist in a vacuum among business leaders and politicians. It rests on a number of pillars holding it up. So that's labor, that's capital, that's the judiciary, that is the media, that is government workers, that is you know the military and police. All of these pillars hold up the existing regime. Some of those pillars, regular people can have an impact on. And so the strategy is to identify which ones do we have an impact on by withdrawing our participation, withdrawing our consent to weaken them. Because if we weaken some of the pillars and pull them out, the roof collapses. That was Joshua Con Russell, an organizer with the group Choose Democracy. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law has been working to protect voting rights throughout this election cycle. I spoke with John Greenbaum, the group's chief counsel and deputy director, about their work and their election protection hotline. We run a hotline called one eight six six our vote O-U-R-V-O-T-E. Uh, a lot of the calls are informational calls, but they're also calls where voters are dealing with particular problems, and we try to help voters in any way we can. And what kinds of calls has the hotline received since the voting process began? Back in, back in September, uh, some people were getting calls. Uh, discouraging them from voting by mail by saying that that the information that they shared with election officials uh, is is accessible to credit collectors and other people, and so that they shouldn't they shouldn't vote by mail. And we found out who the source was of these robocalls, and we actually uh, sued them and got a a temporary restraining order from a federal judge that, among other things, um, forbids these two operators from making more robocalls. And so what state were they in? Were they, where did you receive the phone call from? Well, they were making these phone calls actually in several states, Michigan, Ohio, New York, Illinois, um, are some of the states in which they made, they made these phone calls. And they're, and they're currently, under criminal investigation in Michigan and Ohio. Are they part of a larger group that was doing similar things? As far as, as, far as we know, no, but they, they have pulled other types of shenanigans in the past. We, we don't have any evidence one way or another as to whether they were part of a larger effort. So I, I understand that you, your organization also filed some emergency litigation in Texas. Is that something that you can talk about? Actually, we didn't file. We came in on the defendant side in that case. I mean, there was a case in Texas where a couple of Republican candidates for office challenged the use of drive-in voting that Harris County, where Houston is, uh, had been doing you're able to drive up into a large tent. You would check in like you would at a normal polling place. In Texas, you have to show ID, you do that, you give me your name, you show ID, you'd be given a ballot and you'd be able to vote. And you could do all that without leaving your car. And so there are about 125,000 people in Texas that voted that way, uh, in Harris County, Texas, that voted that way. And then um, you had, these candidates bring a lawsuit saying that that 
violated the United States Constitution. And what the plaintiffs wanted in that case was to get those ballots discarded. Our side won. Um, we do expect that there's going to there's going to be an appeal. That was John Greenbaum from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And that'll do it for this special edition of Making Contact, Election 2020, More Than a Vote. This show was produced by Sonia Green, Monica Lopez, Salima Hamarani, and Anita Johnson. Field producers Freeman X, Tammy Habtiz, Veronica Saragovia, Maritza Felix, and Davy D. Our distribution director is Lisa Rudman, web update Sabine Blazon, production assistant Emily Rose Thorne, and I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>